We have um, had some uh, terrific questions from our One Big Question survey. Someone asked, where is Madeleine McCann? Uh, a lot of people asked, what is the point of it all, which I presume they mean life rather than this survey. Uh, I love the provocative question, God, Allah, Buddha, which one is the real God? Uh, but after looking through hundreds of questions, the one I enjoyed the most was this one. What will I come back as in the next life? A worm or a hedgehog? <laughs> Brackets, I'm a prickly person. Well, there have been some humorous questions, some provocative questions, searching questions. And then there was this one. Please can I die next week? Uh, the deep sadness in that question is clear for everyone to hear. And if the person who wrote that question is here or hears this message through the internet, please, please contact me. We would love to help you and support you through this most painful time in your life. I, I can't fully understand how bad it must be to want your life to end, uh, but I would guess there are more people than we think here in this meeting tonight who've experienced something of that anguish. As a pastor down through the years, I've met many people who are at their wit's end, people who are tired of life, tired of the struggle, tired of the pain, tired of the mess. I've certainly felt it a few times in my own life, and not just when I'm personally low. I heard an interview on the radio on Friday morning with a teenage girl who'd been groomed by men a few years older than her. At first she was befriended by them, and then it turned really nasty. They raped her. But at that stage, they had such a control over her, had her in their grip, that she didn't leave them. And the following week, they were able to rape her again and again. And so it went on until they started to give her to others, other people they knew, to further, further sexually abuse her. And so it went on week after week for this poor girl. It was a harrowing interview. And all the more shocking when the Deputy Children's Commissioner said that current estimates are that up to 10,000 children in Britain could be affected by that kind of horrific abuse by gangs. 10,000 young girls. See, as we look around the world or as we reflect upon our own personal circumstances, life can seem utterly desperate, thoroughly evil, hopelessly out of control. Do you know that feeling of absolute hopelessness? Of feeling all alone? Of seeing no way out? Of a, a shadow hanging over us? A shadow so dark that it, it seems there's nowhere to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide? Now listen, it is for that reason that Jesus came into the world. Because there is a shadow hanging over this world. There is a darkness in this world that leaves us utterly desperate and alone. And because we live in such a dark world, it's probably no surprise that the number one question that people are asking surrounds the question of suffering. Because the world we live in is a broken world. Now, this book, A Broken Down House, begins with the author, Paul Tripp, describing his father-in-law buying a broken down house, a complete wreck of a house. Outside, he describes the grass was so uncut it needed harvesting. Old lawnmowers, decrepit appliances and rusting car parts were strewn everywhere. The storm door hung at a slant, held in place by one rusty hinge. The inside of the house made the outside look pretty good, he says. Inside, nothing was clean. Everything appeared stained and dirty. Every corner seemed to be filled with junk. The place was a complete tip. 
And then he writes, the world you live in is a lot like that broken down house. Every single room has been dirtied and damaged by sin. And he continues with the words that you can follow on the handout. The brokenness around you affects you in different ways at different times. Sometimes you have to deal with personal hurt. Sometimes you grow angry that things do not function as they were designed to. Sometimes you are overwhelmed with feeling sad or lost in the face of this world's pitiful condition. Sometimes you get tired of the effort it takes to live in a broken down house and you just want to quit. At every point and every moment, your life is messier and more complicated than it really ought to be because everything is so much more difficult in a terribly broken world. That is the world that Jesus came into, and that is the reason Jesus came into this world. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12. 12 to 17. Here is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And as Jesus bursts onto the scene, Matthew quotes from Isaiah the prophet in chapter 4 of Matthew, verses 15 and 16. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. When Isaiah first said these words, the people of Isaiah's day were utterly desperate. The little nation of Judah was under attack from the great world superpower of the day, the Assyrians. The Assyrians had more military might than the US do today. They conquered all before them. Nations were so fearful of the Assyrians that they formed alliances with their enemies to protect themselves against the threat of any Assyrian invasion. And at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, the Assyrians were on the move against little Judah, this tiny little nation. And so, Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, quoting Isaiah chapter 9, Judah was living under the shadow of death. The Assyrian invasion was like a dark cloud moving towards them. They were terrified. We probably need to talk to some of the older members of this church who lived through the Second World War for us to begin to understand how mortified they must have been. But here's the point. Isaiah spoke these words to a people who had no hope, it seemed. People who were utterly desperate as they looked around at the world. The world was a thoroughly scary place to live. The world in the form of the Assyrians was going to crush them, wipe them off the planet. And so when Isaiah first said these words, they were words of great hope to a desperate nation. 4 verse 16, here was the promise of a great light to chase away the darkness, to banish the shadow of death. And now as Jesus' public ministry begins, Matthew says Jesus is that great light. He is the hope for people living in darkness. He is the promise of life for those who are living under the shadow of death. Do you feel overwhelmed by life? Do you feel at times that you just can't cope? Do you watch the news sometimes and feel like me, that utter desperation at how broken our world is? Do you feel almost overwhelmed by the tidal wave of immorality in our world, in our nation, in our city? Do you feel at times that you just can't cope with all that the world has thrown at you? Well, look, if that's you, Jesus came into the world for you. If you look at our world and feel desperate, if you wake up each morning and feel that you can't face life, look at what Jesus preached in verse 17. 
He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Isn't that wonderful? The kingdom of heaven is near. There is a kingdom that isn't broken, where there is light and life. A kingdom where the king is kind and compassionate and and full of love. And where he reigns and rules with justice and righteousness. In his kingdom, there is peace and there is love. This is a kingdom where the citizens love their king and call him, as we heard in Isaiah 9, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It is a marvellous kingdom. And you see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17? This kingdom is not far away. It's near. It's near. Well, over these next weeks and over the page on the handout, if you're still following, we're turning to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And as we do, we'll learn about this kingdom, this wonderful kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We'll learn how to enter it, what, what its citizens should live like, why it is so wonderful. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And so as we turn to those verses now, let me pray for us that God would speak to us tonight and over these next weeks. Let's pray. We've sung our Lord and God, who, O Lord, could save themselves? Who alone can rescue? You alone can rescue. You alone can save. We, we feel the weight of that when we look at our own lives and we, when we look at the world that we live in. And so we ask you to lift us tonight and over these next weeks with the glorious picture of the kingdom of heaven. May it be such a contrast to the world we live in that we long for it and that we want to live as its citizens day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, as when we first read these words, when Paul read them for us earlier in the service, Jesus' words do seem very odd. What privilege can there be in poverty? What pleasure can there be in mourning? I am in mourning at the moment. I can assure you it doesn't feel very pleasurable. What strength will there be, really, to be meek? And what satisfaction in hunger? At first reading, these short sayings of Jesus seem quite ridiculous. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Oh, come on, Jesus. You see, in these pithy sayings, Jesus reverses the normal values of our lives and our society. And if these words seem odd to us, you can be sure they seem utterly ridiculous to the world around us. Try it when you get to the office on Monday morning or when you meet up with your friends at uni or at school. Tell your friends and colleagues what a blessing it is to, verse 8, live the pure life. And they will laugh at you. Well, they may be too polite to laugh out loud, loud, but inside they'll be laughing because this world doesn't believe for one minute that purity can bring the most fulfilling experience available. The world tells us that real enjoyment comes from impurity. So here is Jesus turning the world's values upside down and inside out. So, So don't expect the world to embrace these words and do expect yourself to have a battle with these as we look through them because the world is always telling you something else tell these things to your unbelieving friends and you're likely to be written off as someone who's living a life on another planet well 
we're not on another planet, but if we're Christians, we are of another kingdom. And that's the point of this teaching. See, Jesus is telling his disciples what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3 and verse 10 and see how the Beatitudes both begin and end. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is, if you like, a kingdom of heaven sandwich. Everything in and between verses 3 and 10 are about living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that is so different from this world. But then uh, look at this broken down world and you realise that for the kingdom of heaven to be the kingdom of heaven, it has to be different. It can't be like this world. It has to be different. And when you feel desperate about this world, you want it to be different. Bear all that in mind as we go through these verses, when at times they may not seem to make sense to you and you may think, why should I live this? Because they are so different from this world, that is exactly why you should live it. Because they are so different from this world and we are not of this world, we are of the kingdom of heaven. Today we're going to look at the first of these sayings, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every one of these short sayings from Jesus begins with that word, blessed. It's why Christians call these sayings the Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin word for for blessed. In some translations, it's translated happy. Uh, But the word blessed means more than happy. It's the idea of the good life, uh, the life that's worth having. It's more than happy because there's more to life than happiness. It's more than happy because the blessed life is a life that's full of the riches of God. And God riches are far richer and greater than just an ephemeral feeling of happiness. Blessed is the whole idea of living the life that's worth having. It's the idea of knowing God's smile of approval upon your life. It's about being part of the kingdom of heaven and knowing the king of heaven. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are favoured of God, do you see it there, are poor in spirit. Who are these? Well, the poor in spirit is not someone lacking the Holy Spirit. That's not it at all. And it's not someone who lacks personality or verve. Not somebody who's a bit of a wet weekend. No, this is precisely what we've seen in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. The poor in spirit are those who look at the world and their circumstances and feel utterly helpless. The word for poor here is, is is it could be translated the beggarly poor. It is the word that you would use to describe the homeless guy sitting in a shop entrance with a few coins laid out on his coat in front of him. Blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. Blessed is the person who knows their utter need. Like the people of Judah who were completely terrified as the mighty Assyrian army came charging over the hill. Like the person who looks around at this world and feels overwhelmed by it all. Like the person who knows that they lack what is needed to live a God-honouring life. Do you know that feeling, that, that kind of beleaguered feeling because of your sin? I remember I felt it just, uh, just before I became a Christian. I, 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 become, I became aware that I was a sinner. I'd have never used that phrase. It didn't mean anything to me, but I became utterly aware of my sinfulness. I tried to live a good life. I tried to turn over a new leaf. I tried to be better. I remember I was still living at home. I was just about to move out to buy my own flat, and I was living at home, and, and my mum said, she'd said it loads of times before, you treat this house like a hotel. And I thought for once, yeah, I do actually. 
Not that I actually said that to mum, but I thought, I'm going to try harder. I've only got a few more months before I move out. I'll try harder. I'll try not to treat this house like a hotel. Within a couple of days, I was back to it. Do you know that feeling? Christian, do you know that feeling of total frustration with yourself because you failed to live as you should? You want to live better for the Lord Jesus. You you know that he loved you, that he died for you. You want to live for him, but you, you can't do it. And you feel wretched. That's what it is to be broken in spirit. To recognize your utter helplessness. To know your utter helplessness in the world, but more than that, to have real desperation about your utter helplessness before God. Uh, Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57, page 744, and we'll see um, how this is worked out in the Old Testament. Page 744, Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. The reference is on uh, on the handout there. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. And as we look at this verse, we ask the question, where does God live? Where does God live? Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. This is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. That's where God lives, in heaven, in a a high and lofty place. Well, that's not the end of the story. Verse 15, I live in a high and lofty, holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly or poor in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Yes, God lives in in heaven, but by his spirit he lives in the heart of the broken, of the contrite, of the lowly, of the poor in spirit. And where God is king, there is is the kingdom of heaven. The person who is broken in spirit is someone who says, I've blown it. Someone who says, I'm not so great after all. Oh, with their friends, they, you know, always kind of gave this impression of being sorted, but then they started to look in the mirror in the morning. And apart from the fact that they look like Godzilla who'd just woken up with a headache, they they looked deeper than that and they didn't like what they saw. Someone who isn't enamoured with themselves and their own opinions anymore. Yeah, down the pub, they they always got something to say and now they realise what they say isn't so clever. Someone who admits that they're spiritually destitute, spiritually, beggarly poor. And so turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it is blessed to be poor in spirit, for then we turn to Jesus, the the great light of Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, the light who chases away the shadow of death that is forever hanging over us. Not only physical death, of course, but spiritual death, the death of judgment that is to come because of our poverty of spirit. And so it is a very blessed thing to be poor in spirit, to know our great need before God, for then I will turn to the one who will forgive my sin. And then chapter 5, verse 3, I come into the kingdom of heaven. So here's the great surprise of verse 3. If we think we're spiritually rich, then we are in a very bad place, a very dark place. If we think highly of ourselves, if we think we're a bit tasty, something a bit special, 
we are in for big trouble. Because those who consider themselves rich in spirit are not blessed. They are not favoured by God because they, they don't need God. And verse 3, they do not possess the kingdom of heaven because the word theirs in verse 3 is emphatic, meaning theirs and theirs alone. The only way to become a citizen of heaven's kingdom is to be poor in spirit because only then will you throw yourself on the mercy of God and only then will you turn to Jesus. So what about you? And I'm not just talking about the person here who, who you know, some of you will be thinking I'm now talking about the, the person who doesn't normally come to church. I'm talking about all of us. What about you? Do, you? do you consider yourself basically a good person? If you do, then you're not part of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Kent Hughes wrote this book some years back uh, with the very provocative title, Are Evangelicals Born Again? And I've quoted him on the, uh, the handout. He writes this. The, Be- the Beatitudes are revealing of your spiritual state. They are functional tests of, your, of our spiritual life. If we are true believers, then something of each of the eight Beatitudes will be present in our lives. It's not to suggest that anyone can perfectly model the Beatitudes or be saved by them, but rather that if one does not have something of each of the Beatitudes in his or her life, if there is no desire for the Beatitudes to become a growing personal reality, that person may not well be born again. What a challenge. You may have a personal testimony. You may be able to talk about when you became a Christian, but you may not be born again. Do you see the point? If you think you're a good person, you really will not turn to Jesus Christ. Whatever you say, you will not rely on him for your spiritual well-being. If you think you're a good person, you don't need the cross of Christ. You're spiritually wealthy and fit and healthy spiritually. It is only those who realise their poverty, their spiritual bankruptcy, who turn to Jesus, who throw themselves on him and say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look for thee, to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, saviour, or I die. Spiritually, I must see myself like a beggar like a homeless street person, like someone who has nothing, nothing in themselves to commend themselves to God. And so as we close, note this, the opposite of the poor in spirit are the proud. So just over the page, on page three uh, of this handout, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 and 19 says this, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. There's a proverb we all know. Pride goes before a fall. We know it all so well. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Better to be with the oppressed. Can you hear Jesus saying, better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed because yours is the kingdom of heaven? See, poverty of spirit drives you to the kingdom of heaven. Pride will keep you out of God's kingdom because in your pride you will never turn to Jesus. Worse, pride actually sets you in opposition to God. 
So twice in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 is quoted. And it's very arresting. Do you see it there? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Not just he doesn't like them very much. He is in opposition to the proud. Pride is the greatest enemy of the the Christian. Because to be proud is to set yourself up against God. Look, life is hard enough as it is without having the almighty creator of the universe in opposition against you, so don't be proud. No wonder it is blessed to be poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit, humility, a contrite heart is a great friend. Because as so many of the great Christian leaders have come to realise, pride is such a destructive force, and I've quoted some of these on the, uh, on the handout. John Stott wrote, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Charles Bridges said, pride lifts up one's heart against God and contends for supremacy with him. See, when you're proud, you're saying, I want to be God, I want to be God, push God out of the way. Jonathan Edwards calls pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. He ranked pride as the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden secret and deceitful of all lusts. And more recently, C.J. Mahoney wrote, We cannot free ourselves from pride and selfish ambition. A divine rescue is absolutely necessary. And so tonight we're going to celebrate that, that rescue, that divine rescue as we take bread and wine and remember the cross. And as we do this evening, realise your poverty of spirit. If you're a Christian, you should already be aware of it. If you've forgotten it, remember it afresh. And if you're not yet a Christian, realise that you are a beggarly poor person as we all are and then run to the light the Lord Jesus the one who alone can get us out of the darkness of this world and into the glorious kingdom of heaven blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven let's pray together Our Father, we want to confess our pride to you, the pride that keeps rising itself up again and again. The pride that every time we feel it is making a play for your position. The pride that says, I want to be God. I don't need God. Forgive us. And when we feel that utter helplessness, Help us to hold on to it, not for its own sake, but so that we realise how we really are and then run to the Lord Jesus, the one who is kind and compassionate and loving, the one who can make poor people supremely rich, the one who can give us 
nothing less than the kingdom of heaven itself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.